So let's get into it. Today we are going to solve a big mystery. <laughs> um, and that big mystery is uh, where it is, where do, con where do our conflicts actually come from? James is going to dig into this in a deep way. Where does all... You know, if you, maybe you're, if you're like me, you think that you get into the Christian life and you become a Christian, you start walking with Christ. You're like waiting for that, that wonderful day, like when you cross the finish line into Christian maturity and you just don't ever like get angry at anybody anymore. And you kind of like levitate in your meditative state and, and all you do is return love uh, for anger and you never get upset. You never get uh, you never, your, your stomach never twists into knots. You never get that weird feeling when the person you love most walks into the room <laughs> because there's un, unresolved conflict in the relationship. Always waiting for that day. And, and um, so James is going to answer the question today. Where's all that? Where does all that crazy come from? Where does all that crazy come from? And what can we expect? And, and what's God's solution to that? Um, so that we might uh, be a blessing to others. So we're going to get into that today in James chapter 4. This is a super key passage to biblical counseling. We're going to talk uh, a lot about some of the tools that we use in biblical counseling. Uh, and the first line of biblical counseling, the first line of discipleship in any church is the preaching ministry of the church. We are discipling each other right now and learning and being counseled in God's word. So uh, this is a central passage to that. So let's, if you would please stand now, if you're able, and let's read together uh, and listen intently together to God's word from James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says... He yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. Lord, thank you for your word, uh, the penetrating ability it is to show us the deepest confire, the deepest corners of our hearts, Lord. Uh, but even more than that, the way your word shows us uh, your astonishing uh, and never-ending, never-quitting, never-giving-up 
always striving for us, never letting go kind of love that you have for us, Lord, and that you are working in our lives, even, uh, even in, especially maybe in our sin, Lord, uh, and that we can be so grateful for that, Lord, to see what you are doing um, uh, and to be so grateful for what you are doing in and through us by your spirit so that we uh, might have peace even in this life and be peacemakers to others, Lord. And all of this is possible because of what Jesus has done for us. So we pray that you would help us to see what you're, what you're showing us here today, Lord, but even more so that you would help us to see the, the astonishing beauty of who you are, of what Jesus has done for us, and our security in you. Uh, and we pray this in Jesus' name, Lord. Give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promise to beautify us, your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. Let me start with, a, I'm going to start with a quote from one pu uh, public commentator's view of Christianity and Christians. This is what he says. He says, I have often wondered that persons who make boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, charity to all men, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and, and display daily towards one another such bitter hatred that this, rather than the virtues which they profess, is the readiest criteria of their faith. Now, that could have been said by any number of critics watching our behavior, maybe especially over the last season or the last year. But uh, what makes this interesting is that it was said by the 17th century <laughs> philosopher, non-Christian, the Jewish philosopher Spinoza. And to me, that is both... That is most infinitely comforting and infinitely disturbing. And, it's, and it's, it's both of those things for the same reason. It's disturbing because it means that back in the good old golden age that we all look back to when everyone, Christianity was strong and everyone was holy, it means we were just as cantankerous as we are today. <laughs> uh, and that's, that's a bummer, right? But also that's kind of comforting. Why is that? That's kind of comforting, right? Because it means that uh, we're all in the same boat. It means that we're not the only ones. All the way from Paul's letter to the, to the, uh, to the Corinthians, where they're fighting and splitting off into factions, and Paul's letter to the Philippians, where the underlying you know, problem is that they're splitting into factions, and uh, all through the New Testament, through to the church fathers, through especially to the Reformation area, all the way through the 20th century, uh, all the way to the last election cycle and other important issues where good people might disagree. There's one thing uh, that seems most apparent to outsiders, and that is Christians love to fight, especially amongst one another. And the big question is why? Why is that? Why are we not able to love each other the way Christ has commanded us to do so. Not that we don't do that, you know, ever, but there does seem to also be this other current of conflict and inner fighting amongst us. And everybody has an answer to why that is, right? You know, if you ask the reformers, they would have said, it's the heretics, it's the papists. Uh, you know, if you ask the Corinthians, it would say those people who follow Apollos. If you asked... Uh, you know, it's the heretics, it's the liberals, it's the conservatives, it's uh, 
my wife. My wife would say, it's my husband. And she would be right. Uh, <laughs> it's my family, it's the kids, it's my extended family, it's my parents, it's my bank account, it's the bank, it's the market. Uh, it's all of these external things that are points of tension and stress in my life that cause me to lash out and causes conflicts and fights and quarrels in my life. And James says, nope, totally different, wrong, wrong answer. James says, it has nothing really to do with any of those external things. And it has everything to do it has everything to do with what's inside of us, what's already inside of us, what's already there, and how we respond, really, uh, to the temptations, to the struggles, to the sin of others, to, uh, to the world at large, really. And so that's the, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the big mystery, where does all this crazy come from? We're going to look at, second thing, what is, really, what is God, how does God respond to that in our life? What's God's response to all this crazy in our life? And then finally, we're going to look at what God's big purpose of this is in creating in us the wisdom of a gospel-centered life. So let's first look at the first one, which is, where does, where does all this crazy come from? And here, this is almost like, as a preacher, this is almost like silver platter handed to me by the biblical counselors and CCEF ministry. I didn't really have to come up with anything because they are such a wealth of material that they have developed really out of this passage in and of itself to talk about where our conflicts come from. And one of the best illustrations uh, that I've ever, ever come across, and if you've ever done any counseling with me, you probably have already seen this uh, you've already seen this, but one of my uh, pastor in our denomination, one of our professors also, a guy that I've been able to learn from, named Alfred Poyer from Rocky Mountain Community Church in Colorado. He has this story that he tells about he was, he was giving a, a, a class or he's giving a you know, teaching series on biblical counseling to a group of Silicon Valley engineers. And these guys are all like super high level technical uh, you know, they knew physics inside and out. And he came out to them. He had a cup in, uh, like this. And he came out and he looked at them and he, and, he, and he did this. He hit the cup. He goes. He did that and he said to the guys, now, why did water come out of the cup? And you could see the gears spinning in their brains. They're all, well, there's the transfer of inertia. And when the force of the hand hit the cup, it transferred into the cup. And Matt, you're following along with this, right? And then the water came spilling out of the cup. And that's why it was, it's the, it's the physical principle of inertia. And he goes, no. He hits the cup again. Why did water come out of the cup? And now they're really mystified. They're like, oh, I don't know. So they're like racking their brains for like the underlying physics principles behind inertia or uh, momentum or transfer of energy. And they're like throwing out all these things. And finally, he just shuts them down and goes, no, listen, you're overthinking it. The reason water came out of the cup is because there's water in the cup. Tangerine flavored sparkling water, to be, to be exact. Now, what did he mean by that, right? Now, hold that thought. I'm going to get to it in a minute. But what he meant by that was when something is hit, whatever's inside that thing is what's going to come out. 
And so what is James talking about? He's talking about that basic same thing. Let me read it again. He says this, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, meaning God. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly, because you just want to suspend it on your own passions. The easiest way to explain really what James is getting into is, is another CCEF principle that talks about called the three Ds, which is this. The, the first D is desire. The second D is demand. And the third D is damn. And what it means, and what I think James is saying here is this, is that we all have desires, right? We all have things that we desire in life, and many of them, most of them, are really good desires. I mean, you may, you know, maybe some bad desires mixed in there, but for the most part, you may have really, you know, good and, uh, you know, God-honoring desires. You may have the desire uh, to be loved. You might have the desire for security. You might have the desire to have obedient children. You might have the desire... Uh, for comfort. You might have the desire to be, to be able to rest and relax. You might have the desire to uh, achieve something in life or to succeed in your career. All those are not bad in and of themselves. And God, honor, you know, it's, so, it's, it's good for us to have those healthy desires, except for what happens, what happens in the sinful heart is that at some point, those healthy desires, things that we wish we could have or things that we're working for, the fallen heart twists them and all of a sudden they become demands. They become things that we must have. They become things that we can't live without. They become things that we deserve because of whatever, you know, maybe what we have done and, you know, what we've done. We deserve this. And therefore, it means that everyone else is now obligated, morally obligated, to help us attain those desires to help us. Uh, and we are willing to do whatever is necessary to do in relationship to other people to make that happen. Do we need to be kind to someone so that they'll come on to our, come into our plan and help us achieve this thing or get out of the way so we can achieve it? Or do we need to be mean to someone? Uh, do we need to pray and ask God for these things? <laughs> whatever it is necessary will do it in order to gain that thing that we not only desire, but then demand. And the result of that demanding is that when we don't get it, or when we're thwarted, or we ask God to like fulfill our selfish desires and he doesn't come through, we damn the person who has gotten in the way or refuses to help. Uh, when your loved one doesn't help or worse seems to get in the way, you see them as enemies and we condemn them, we judge them, we damn them as, as enemies. You don't love me. You don't care. Uh, you're being disrespectful. You're trying to wreck everything that I've worked so hard for. That's what it sounds like in our brains when this is going on, right? And, and, and here's the worst part. Here's where this cup illustration comes in. It's not, it's not that person and what they're doing that's causing the conflict. The situation is, it's really just an opportunity for what's already inside your heart to kind of spill out when, you, when conflict hits. It exposes, it brings out of the light like 
who we really are, what we really trust in, and how we're really treating people, right? And why is that such a big deal? What is it that spills out? Well, somebody, I think, I don't know how long this has been around, maybe a year or two, someone coined the, the acute word frenemy, right? Which is like a, a word to explain that you have a, a relationship with someone where you have all the like outward uh, or external uh, you know, elements of it looks like you have a friendship, but underneath, you're really, it's, you're really an enemy with that person. You're really at war with that person. And what this does to us is twofold. First of all, it, with other people, it causes us to like, it, it shows us that we more often than we want to treat other people like tools to get what we want or we see other people and treat them as obstacles in the way of getting what we want. And what is that? Then that betrays our innermost self. It betrays what it is that we really worship. What is worship is an old word that comes from worth-ship. It means what you assign the most value to, what's most important to you, uh, uh, what's most important to you in life, right? Is it? And it betrays that although we like, we can say all day long we worship God and we love God and we want to serve God and serve people above all things, but we keep finding that in our everyday life, uh, one way or another, these desires that have turned into demands and then when they're thwarted by someone or not supported by someone, we turn the people in our lives into enemies or obstacles or condemn them because of it, uh, and it and it shows shows what we really worship. It shows what we really worship. And, and listen, what's so bad about that is it's just a miserable way to live. It's a miserable way to live. Now, maybe your life isn't fully characterized by these things, but all of us, that's the, you know, the astonishing part of the Christian life is no longer, no matter how far along you go in the Christian life, these things, these things keep popping up here and there, you know? And those desires, those, those, those desires turning into demands is kind of just a regular part of the fallen heart. Uh, it is, there's nothing worse. There's nothing worse to have a life that's just characterized by, by broken relationships and, and a life that is, is characterized by feeling like God is a million miles away and doesn't care about you. And having a life that is turned, because of all this, you start to adopt these belief systems that no one cares, not these people in your life, certainly not God. It is a miserable, miserable way to live. Now, maybe again, maybe your life's not totally characterized by this, but even the small, even the instances where it still affects us are still miserable moments in our lives, right? And the beauty of God, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the spirit and what God has done for us is that God loves us so much that he is not willing to allow us to sit in that misery. He is actively and constantly at work in our lives to wean us off of that, that addiction to self-reliance and self-power and bring us into the, into the beauty and freedom of God relies. And how does he do that? Second thing is, is God, second point, God is a jealous God. Now listen, God is a jealous God. When I say that, that might sound really bad, right? That might sound kind of crazy. 
because jealousy can be a super ugly thing, right? In human terms, jealousy uh, does terrible things to other people. The prisons are full of husbands and wives who were jealous, and graveyards are full of the people that they poured out their jealousy on and crushed. And so in human terms, jealousy is an ugly and awful thing. How can we say that God is jealous? I remember watching an interview with Oprah Winfrey once, and she said that she was talking about how she ended up leaving the Christian faith for her understanding of a broader, more encompassing spirituality. And she said she was sitting in church one day, and the pastor was talking about how God is a jealous God. And she couldn't get over that. This was running around in her mind. She said, God is a jealous God. How could that possibly be that God is jealous? Thinking about it, in human terms and seeing the destruction and devastation that jealousy causes in human lives on, on human terms, on a human scale. I've always wanted to ask her, I've, I've always wished that someone would have access to her and ask her, look, did you ever like, did you ever have the opportunity to research that and, and look more deeply into that about what the Bible says about that? Or are you just strictly thinking about it in human terms and maybe your interpretation of that is wrong? Because if she had, or if she did, this is what she would find. First of all, <laughs> this next section where James starts out by calling his whole church, you adulterous people. Now that's how it sounds super harsh thing to say, right? Uh, it sounds super fire and brimstoney. And it's a big break from the way James usually speaks to his uh, to the churches. We're calling them brothers and beloved, beloved brothers and sisters. But what is he saying in that? Right at the gate, he's saying, "You adulterous people, what is what is necessary for adultery? A marriage, a spiritual marriage, a covenantal relationship." People outside of the faith, uh, people who are uh, unbelievers cannot be adulterous to God. They can't be. Only believers, only people that are in that covenant, in that relationship with God can even, are even, it's even possible for us to be adulterous. And so James is starting this out by laying down the foundation of who we are. Listen, he's like, you are in covenant relationship with Christ with God, through Christ, Christ as our mediator. Jesus, by his sacrificial life, sacrificial death, uh, by his death for us, he has given us, uh, he has given us his righteousness, he has taken away our sins, and he has brought us into a unbreakable covenantal relationship with the Father. And that's the big deal, it's happening here. Uh, we are acting against uh, the covenant that we have with God, but we are just really acting against who we really are and who we have become in Jesus. And so James, lay, even in that, that first phrase, he lays out who we are in our foundation. And what, is, and what does he say? What does God do? What does God do when we get trapped in these... Uh, and these patterns are, when, you know, when when, uh, when our desires turn to demands and our sin flares up, what does God do? Does he throw wrath at us? Did he punish us? Listen to what this says. He says, he, God, yearns jealously 
over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Which means that when sin veers us into these destructive patterns, it means that God's spirit is right there with us, fighting for us. He is being jealous over us. And he is fighting, uh, uh, fighting with us and for us to bring us out of these destructive patterns. And when you think about it, now think about the whole idea of a jealous God in those, in those terms. In human terms, a jealous husband uh, and a lover and violence is awful. But when you superimpose the other categories, when God is the jealous husband, and the lover who's courting us is Satan and sin and death. Do you want God to come in and jealously crush that lover? Heck yes. I want him to come in with all force and crush his head. And he did. Even though it bruised his heel, right? So that's what it means that God is a jealous God. It means that he is so, he, he's so jealous. He loves us so much that when we veer into sinful patterns, he just doesn't allow us to just run off and be miserable in it. His spirit comes in and fights for us. It contends for us. It crushes the sin. Paul says the same thing in Galatians. Listen, the spirit wars against the flesh to keep you from doing the things you want to do. What does that say? He's saying that we have all kinds of sinful desires in our hearts that we want to do, but the spirit is there fighting against it, pushing it down, helping us to overcome those things. So we don't, he's keeping us from being as awfully sinful as we would be otherwise. <laughs> Paul calls this being led by the spirit, led by the spirit. And this man, this can look a lot, this is different, you know, depending on the situation. And maybe it looks like, you have a deep sense of grief for the sin that you're engaged in and you get over it and sick of yourself and you just want to go back home to, to the Father. You find, wake up and you find yourself eating pig food and you're like, what the heck am I doing? I need to go back home. And you start walking back home with your, oh, I'm so very sorry speech ready. <clears throat> and what does God do next? James says, pretty abruptly, he says, but he gives more grace. In that prodigal son parable, the son's like walking up the house, waiting to like give his, oh, so I'm so very sorry, speech to the dad, thinking his dad's going to chastise him and pour wrath on him and, uh, you know, send him off to the servant's quarters, maybe. Instead, in that repentance, God just overwhelms him with grace and mercy and love. And that's what James is saying here, the same thing. We, we get caught up in these patterns of destructive behavior and sin, or we're sinning against ourselves, people in our lives. God's spirit comes in and fights for us, <clears throat> and it breaks us. And we remember how good God is. We remember like how awful sin is and real godly sorrow develops in us. That's all that language about repent and mourn. Let your mourning, you know, you let your joy be turned to gloom. It's, it's, it's the joy, the, the transient 
temporary joy of sin, uh, let that be re replaced by the, the gloom or the, the true godly sorrow that we've sinned against God. And in that moment when we're expecting God to come down on us with the hammer, instead he pours out more grace. And it, I don't know, but I have had experiences in my life where I totally dropped the ball. I mean, like totally sinned, broken vow sin style stuff, you know, like, and, and, and I'm sitting there in my shame, like, dang, and I can't believe I did that again. Bracing myself, you know, for God's, just to feel awful and feel crushed under the weight of the shame and guilt of my sin. And I've been flooded instead with this sense of peace and with God's approval, with his care and concern and love for me pouring out more grace on us. That is God being jealous for us. That is the spirit at work in us. That's the benefit we have from the spirit in us that was given to us through Christ's work for us. And it is utterly unique in the sphere of religious ideas that the man, mankind has ever come up with. There's no other religion that has any other, any other concept like that. It is utterly unique to Christianity. And so what is God, what is God doing in and through this? You know, I'm like, I'm, you know, I, I, there's still a big part of me that's looking for that, for that day prior to glorification, that day when I reach a certain level of maturity where I'm just not, I just don't get angry anymore, where I don't lash back at my, you know, my, my, you know, my wife or my kids in various ways, where I don't enter into arguments like to win rather than to, you know, you know, y'all know what I'm talking about, right? It's, I'm always waiting for that day when that just doesn't happen anymore. But you know what? The longer I go in this life, the more I'm convinced that that day is just not coming this side of glory. And Christian maturity is really more a matter of, of understanding that element of yourself, what Paul says in Romans 7. What I, what I want to do, I, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I end up doing. That's the Christian life. And maturity is really the matter of recognizing that sin in yourself and being able to recognize it faster and trusting and leaning into the spirit and through rhythms of prayer and life, asking God to pull you out of it and help you to be more like Jesus in those moments. It never goes away, but our ability to see it clearly, I think improves, right? And this is what God is calling us to submit to, his loving care for us uh, in bringing us out of our sinful patterns and helping us to be people uh, who are better able to love the people around us. And that's, that's the ultimate goal. The third point is that God is creating in us the wisdom of the gospel. God is creating in us the wisdom of the gospel. Now, there's a, there's a principle in, in, in ministry and in counseling that's 
pretty familiar, you probably all know this, is that if you've gone through a specific hardship or event in life, it makes you really able to, uh, to minister to other people that are in that same crisis in life, right? For a lot of people, that it, it's really hard to uh, approach homeless people or people who are in, in deep addiction to drugs. Um, for me, having been homeless twice for three years each, it's really easy for me to, uh, to, um, to approach homeless people because I'm li they're literally my people. I literally, I, I understand what, what they're going through. I can empathize with the struggle that they have. And I don't see them as different or weird. I see them as really just fellow strugglers, a lot like me. Uh, and it, it gives me the ability to really just sit with them and sit with people and minister to them and just be, be their friends. And I have, I have got a lot of friends in the homeless community because of that. Same with addiction. Maybe people that are going crazy addiction patterns, it's really hard for you know to approach them. But if you've been through addiction, it's really easy. If you've been through a divorce, uh, it's really easy to minister and comfort people who are going through a divorce. Um, that in each of those individual instances are like micro pictures of how having gone through the struggle gives us the ability to minister better to and truly love and empathize and be helpers to others who are going through those same struggles. Now, if we pull that camera back and we don't look at just, just those individual struggles, but we just look at the struggle, right? The struggle is real, as they say. Everybody is going through these patterns of, of sin and repentance and restoration. And if you've been down the road a little longer in Christ, it just means you've gone through more of those patterns and you have a better picture of the grace of God. And you have a better picture of um, what the Christian life is really like. And so instead of like seeing people as either, uh, you know, instead of seeing people as tools or as obstacles or as frenemies, instead we can start seeing people as fellow strugglers on the way. And that is a beautiful thing that God is creating in us. Listen to what, listen to what James says at the end here. From uh, verse 11 and 12, he says, he goes, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. This is like his therefore his therefore clause at the end of all this. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Notice he's back to the brother language. So we're good now. <laughs> he's pulling us in. The one who speaks against his brother judges his brother. The one who speaks against a brother judges his brother, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? What is he saying? What does that even mean? He's saying to speak evil or judge a brother is the same thing we talked about in the first point, to damn them, to curse them as, as either a tool or an obstacle as an enemy. But to speak evil or to be a judge over the law is to judge really, or to judge or contradict what the law says about love being our primary motive in all things. It shows um, about, about the law's command to love our neighbor, to love our brother and love our sister. Uh, and worst of all, it puts us, it makes us really trying to usurp God's place and God's power as that judge. 
And we don't have the power, we don't have the knowledge, we don't have the wisdom to be God. And so what, what place do we have? What is James getting at? What is the opposite of judging your neighbor? Well, speaking about addiction, <laughs> there's a book, there was a book called, by uh, a guy named uh, Ernest Kurtz, A History of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the title of the book was Not God. <laughs> and really the whole, the book is, if you know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, the big problem with Alcoholics Anonymous, once you get to the nitty gritty of it, is that people build up these crazy resentments because, uh, um, because that, uh, that, that process is so hyperactive in them of having desires and then demanding them uh, and then treating people like tools or obstacles uh, and then damning everybody around them and carrying these resentments. The resentments become so thick and so grievous from trying to play God in everybody's life and your own that it, the only relief, the, that you find relief in the drinking and then eventually the drinking turns against you and you can't stop, right? I mean, that's the super condensed version. And so what, what Bill Wilson and the early founders of AA figured out was that the, and really the core of that whole program was learning how to be not God. Just to say it like that is almost kind of shocking, right? It kind of like bring real, it, it almost like brings up and, uh, you know, in the periphery of our mental vision, how often and how, uh, how easy it is for us to be trying to play God in our own life and in the lives of others. We decide what we must have, and then we fight for that with all the power that we have, uh, and it causes all these conflicts that are so miserable. And so the biggest, really what James is saying, kind of the same thing. He's like, God, in all this, through this process of sin and repentance and restoration and the, out, the, the, the jealous yearning of the spirit fighting for you and the overflowing of grace upon you is all to give you this beautiful gift of being able to live life as not God. Meaning what? Instead of like trying to be God in everybody's life, what does that mean? If we're free from that, if we're free from being the judge, if we're free from being God, it allows us to see other people not as tools, obstacles, enemies, but as fellow strugglers along the way. It's that macro picture, right? Everybody is struggling. It gives us the ability to see everybody, others, people's sin, not as this personal vendetta against us, but as something that they're struggling with in the same way that we are. And it allows us to treat other people and help other people and to lay down our lives for the good and the benefit of others. And man, there's peace and freedom in that. There is so much peace and freedom in that. And that's what God is giving to us. Let me close with the story of, story of the track and field world championships in Qatar in 2019. Maybe you guys saw this. Uh, I'm sure you, everybody saw this, right? There was a, a world championship in Qatar. There were two men uh, that were, they were at the back of the pack. They weren't contenders to win, right? But one of the men, Jonathan Busby, uh, at the end of this race, literally began to collapse with exhaustion. And one of his competitors, this guy named Brema Sunkar Dabo, uh, 
comes up behind him and literally picks him up and puts his arm over his shoulder and the camera's like zoom into him as he's, as he's struggling carrying this guy, his competitor around the final corner of the race, right? And, and what's crazy about it is the crowd went ballistic. The, the, the end of the race had was five minutes prior to this, right? But the crowd went nuts. Everybody stood up. It was so electric just watching, really, the, not just the act, but the response of the crowd to it. It was so stunning. Everybody just jumped up and yelled and screamed as this guy carried, literally carried his, his competitor across the finish line and at the end, you know, put him down. There's the article that I got when I looked this up. It started by this. It said, you didn't need a stopwatch or a measuring tape to identify the biggest winner on the first night of track and field's worst championship, right? Now, what is going on? What is, why is that? Why was this such a powerful moment? I mean, we value, was it, it the guy, they, they dropped the competition aspect. It's not we don't, don't value a good competition, but when competition crosses the line and refuses to see and, and the humanity of people and to step in and to help them, it becomes something other than competition. And that's the, I think that's the value that everybody recognized when they watched this. We saw this example of someone willing to lay down their own desires, lay down their own demands, lay down their own life to help this brother cross the finish line. Now, look, man. That's us. Everybody, one of the wisest things I've ever heard was somebody told me, everyone you meet has a story that if you heard it, it would break your heart. Um, and what that, you know, that's part, that's just part of the reality that everybody's struggling. Everybody is, being, is suffering under the weight of their own sin and temptations and the way sin drives us. Uh, they're suffering under the weight of how other people's sin affects them. And, and um, everybody is struggling in that. And rather than like lashing out, rather than being so absorbed with self-interest that we lash out at the people around us, God is giving us this precious gift where we're able to see each other as fellow strugglers on the way. And the goal is to help each other across the finish line. And isn't that fitting that God would be shaping us into that image? Because that is exactly what Jesus did for us. At the, ultimately, we are not, we're not the guy who picks up, we're the guy struggling and Jesus is the one who left all of his comfort, all of his privilege to come and help us, to, to literally pick us up from our dead state and carry us across the finish line. And in this, he's inviting, he's inviting us to share in that joy. He's inviting us to share in that joy and in that life so that we might not just have the family characteristics, but we might be able to even now begin to enjoy the freedom and the beauty of eternal life 
even still while we're in the midst of this evil age. Amen. Let's pray. Father, there is um, <clears throat> Lord, you are so good to us. And it's almost uh, it's almost it's almost hard to to intake the depths and the magnitude of your love for us and your care for us and how how much above us you are Lord in the life that you're calling us into we thank you so much when we get little glimpses of it uh, this little glimpses that you give us of the beauty of the life that you're calling us into, the beauty of the life that we will have in fullness one day. But these passages like this that maybe at first sound so harsh are actually pictures of your love calling us into uh, this relationship with you and with others that reflect the kingdom values of love, that reflect the kingdom values of, of peace that reflect the kingdom value of lying down, of dying to ourselves and being and pouring ourselves out for the service and the benefit of others, which is the definition of love. So we thank you, Lord, that, that, that you yourself did this for us. We were laying down on the track in, 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 the, in the quest for heaven dead and unable to move and you came and picked us up and are carrying us across the finish line and we pray lord that the gratitude that we have for that and our sense of awe at the magnitude of your love would create in us just maybe just little glimmers of that so that when the world looks in when outsiders look in they would be able to see once in a while these pictures of love, these reflections of your character in the world. And when they see the sin in us, it would redirect to the grace and mercy that we've received from God, which is available to any who would have it, Lord. So we pray that you would make us pictures and carriers and heralds of the gospel in what we say and what we do so that you might be glorified and so that people might come to faith in Jesus' name. Amen.